Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Have a listen to this extract from a rather apocalyptic article published on the Naked Scientists website. It is the stuff of nightmares a society so wound up in the legal system that no one is allowed to tell you the truth or that those with money control state censorship. However, this isn't some John Grisham novel. This is the unfortunate state of the UK libel system today. Put simply, the current UK libel laws have no place in science. Scientists should be free to tell the truth, to publish the results of their experiments and should be free to criticise bad science. Criticism is the cornerstone of science, and without it, UK science will crumble. Think about it. Without criticism, how will you be able to spot falsification? Without criticism, what is even the point of proving your ideas anyway? Who needs experiments and proof? Ownership of the truth would fall to the highest bidder, and the UK and many other countries would turn into very dangerous places. That creed occur from Harriet Dickinson was written at a time when the UK had become the world capital for vexatious libel trials. Inconvenient scientific and medical truths had become fair game for disputatious lawyers. It all came to a head when the science writer Simon Singh expressed some doubts about the efficacy of chiropractic medicine. The British Chiropractic Association promptly took a libel action against him. The High Court case gained a lot of traction in the press and happily Singh won. He had remortgaged his house to fund his defence and would have faced ruin had things gone against him. That was more than 10 years ago, but the dangers of suppressing the truth and gagging free expression are not only still with us, but perhaps even more present. Censorship is our subject this week. Governments do it, institutions do it, religious bodies who claim to have the keys to heaven do it, and perhaps more worryingly, we have a tendency to do it to ourselves. With me to discuss censorship are Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director of the Wolf Institute and a regular contributor to Naked Reflections. She's a former citizen of the defunct East German state, formerly called the German Democratic Republic and Catholic journalist James Roberts, who is the co-author of a new book called Trump and the Puritans. Unsurprisingly, the discussion you're about to hear proved to be very contentious, and some of the views expressed are not shared by the Wolf Institute. 
I started by suggesting to James Roberts that when we think about censorship, we often think about Nazis burning books, which they described as being infected by the Jewish spirit, or Soviet officials pulping them. Is focusing on these extreme examples a way of avoiding what is a complex issue? I think the issue has become dramatically more important in the past 10 years from that moment that you quote there. Why would I say that? I think that what we're seeing now is a kind of censorship that is based on bullying and intimidation. And you refer to self-censorship. Well, try to make that a matter of articles and uh, I might disagree with them, but that's normal for a paper. I think the best example of censorship at the moment that I can give is to do with Black Lives Matter, actually. And I think that backs up my point about bullying and intimidation. Recently, I had to cancel my subscription to Sky Sports. Why? Uh, Because, in my view, they're colluding with racism by this endless endorsement of Black Lives Matter, which is not an organisation that, in my view, really cares much about black lives. It's very much a political organisation with a certain agenda. If you look at the results of their protests, you see many black people who've suffered This is something I care very much about personally. My wife is Nigerian. We have a mixed-race daughter. And I worked for eight years in Zimbabwe. So Black Lives Matter a great deal to me. And this is why I take a special interest in it. What I see is bullying and intimidation. You're trapped into saying, if you don't agree with us, you don't care about black lives. You have to uh, agree with us to show that you care about black lives. And that's where the bullying comes in. And that's where people cave. And that's where you get people like the Premier League, Sky Sports, Test Cricket, referees taking a knee. In Washington, we had an archbishop taking a knee. Kneeling is, for most people of faith, is a sacred thing. We kneel before our God. But to have people bullied into taking a knee before a secular organization, which actually has links to a terrorist, Susan Rosenberg, we can come back to that, is deeply troubling and unpleasant. Let me unpack some of what you said. I mean, that's a really powerful start. We're really getting into this episode and our listeners will be well listening very carefully to what you've just said. It's obviously very provocative. So let's unpack some of what you said, because, of course, you'd recognise the suffering of black people in history in terms of slavery and so on. Right. The question is, how do we mark that? How do we deal with that? And of course, many people who took part in the Black Lives Matter protests did it out of recognition that this is a serious problem. It's about entrenched racism. Now, I recognise that some of the symbols you're talking about, like kneeling, may be seen for some as as fake. And of course, for people of faith, kneeling is something very significant, is something sacred. But in terms of the Black Lives Matter protests, James, how should we mark this recognition? Isn't it part of a wider recognition of a serious public concern of the history of racism? Let's start with the UK. Certainly there is racial discrimination in the UK. When the Premier League had a programme, Kick Out Racism, I fully supported that because there there are racist tendencies in Britain. And what you see is, I think, in, say, in British sport, Black people are multimillionaires. You know, you can't take that away. But what there is, I think, is a kind of glass ceiling in terms of running the sports and the higher parts of management that seems to exclude black people. I think that's the case. But I don't think the Black Lives Matter organisation is focusing on anything like that at all. 
And similarly, I think there are individual prejudices that people don't acknowledge or know about in themselves even that can come to the fore. And I think all the black people I know, black people in my family, my friends, they want to counter these things in an individual way. They don't want an organisation saying making them into victims. OK, James, James, I'm going to interrupt you because the conversation we're trying to have is about censorship, n- not racism. I mean, I'd recommend for those listeners who want to know more about racism to listen to the podcast we did on that subject a, a few weeks ago. But no, we're concentrating on censorship. And I take seriously the comments you've made about the pressure and the bullying. And, and let's take that a bit further. And let's bring in our second contributor, Miriam, before she says nothing before the end of the first part. Now, Miriam has an expertise in the pre-modern period. And of course, censorship was very much in existence then. And it's both a a religious and a a secular concept. So Miriam, help us contextualise censorship in this pre-modern world. Well, there's a big difference between before and after the printing press. So the printing press, this great instrument of mass communication that really, really alters the structure of society, very much in the same way as our social media revolution has altered the structure of mass communication. So pre-printing press, it was much easier for state authorities to control people because all you had to do was identify problematic people. All they have to do is basically make sure that you don't write any letters, confiscate all the letters. If you have a thinker, this person is silenced, All the copies of policies of their writing are being destroyed. You make sure that these writings don't circulate any further. So pre-printing press, it's very easy to censor. What you mostly do is you go after letters. You make sure that communication doesn't happen through letters. And again, they're very inventive ways. Either you just sort of make sure that you confiscate all letters that go out and destroy them. But again, of course, there's a reaction by people who write letters. So you start writing in chiffre. You start assigning different letters of the alphabet that you write this incomprehensible garbles that people, if they open your letters, they can't actually read what you've written. It really changes with the the printing press because then suddenly you start having to to pulp printed books. You start having to find all the leaflets that have been printed. You have to sort of stop the spread of dangerous ideas, like, for example, in the form of Protestantism uh, in Europe. I mean, I'm an East German. I always like to talk about East Germany where, again, you pulp books, make sure that certain ideas don't get circulated in the population. But again, people find a way around. Of course, these books then get sort of shipped in from abroad. You circulate them secretly uh, among your friends. And censorship in the newspaper is actually a very interesting thing. It's a bit like writing references when you're an academic. When you write words like sort of hardworking, that may sound all right, but they actually sort of have certain connotations about the intellectual capability of, of a student. In the same way, when you read East German newspapers, would have expressions like the capitalist class enemy tried to attack our German People's Republic again. Then you know that someone tried to flee the Republic. Then West German border forces would help that person. You could basically interpret certain phrases and understand what really happened. So this is, I think, an ability that a lot of East German people had. And they could interpret what sort of things were said in newspapers. And I suppose we take from that, and and James, let me turn to you, that we now have another revolution after the printing press, which is the global telecommunications revolution, if you like, and the immediacy of communication. How does that affect your work as a journalist? Well, considerably. What we see is the great power of social media 
little instance, this is not something that affected me, but it's an instance of what I'm talking about. You probably saw how uh, J.K. Rowling got hammered mercilessly by trolls. What did she say? She said, perfectly obvious, true, innocent thing. People who menstruate are actually women. And that brought down a whole ton of bricks on her. So this is kind of social media fascism, really. Talking about the cancel culture. It all comes back to bullying and intimidation. I'm, I'm sure Miriam saw it with the Stasi. And people have to be brave to stand up against it. So in this instance, J.K. Rowling, I would say, I'm not a great fan of her politics, but, you know, can't argue with her success as a writer. But she's being very brave. You know, she's sticking her head above the parapet. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Esther Miriam Wagner and James Roberts. And we're talking about censorship. Earlier this year, the Naked Genetics podcast published an investigatory programme about genetic data gathering undertaken by the Sanger Institute in Cambridge and the matter of consent. One of the whistleblowers was Deputy Gordasani. I think it's a huge ethical issue, even above being a legal issue, because there is a lot of helicopter science that happens with African samples. And by that, I mean samples get taken out of Africa or data gets taken out of Africa. African researchers aren't involved. African institutes aren't involved. The communities who contribute to data aren't involved. And the next thing we see is that, you know, there's something published or there's output from that that's very much driven by um, a Western institute. And there is a, a long history of this. In the context of that, we have to be very, very sensitive uh, to what's happened in the past and ensure that, you know, African institutes and African researchers are empowered to lead their own research and to make decisions about what happens with their samples and data. Well, Depti was fired. Of course, powerful institutions have to protect themselves, as we heard. But some are tempted, perhaps, not to tell the truth. Now, Miriam, I want to come on to the question of telling the truth and the pressure that we sometimes feel as academics to fit into what we often call political correctness. Have you felt under pressure to conform in your work? It's a very complicated question because I think we all in our daily interactions bend the truth somehow. You know, you will not tell someone who looks terrible on a day that they look terrible. I mean, Germans do that. British people don't do that. British people are too polite. I mean, politeness is a form of censorship and white lying, I suppose. You know, Germans are very good in telling people your hair looks terrible. A British person would never, ever say that. And again, it's sort of bounded with politeness. So in a way, we all bend the truth to a degree because we don't want to hurt people. We don't want to upset people. But of course, there are much bigger issues at the moment. There are certain truths that cannot be imparted anymore because, again, they hurt people. They create unsafe spaces. And it's a very difficult discussion we're having. I think we've lost the tolerance or the ability to accept opposing views. It's very, very difficult. The sort of the toleration of ambiguity is something that gets increasingly lost. People think that there's only one truth. Of course, this is something that, you know, as academics in the olden days, we used to discuss, of course, the different perspective. You look at, a, at an issue from different angles and you see very different things. And I think this is a, an ability we've lost at the moment. We cannot express these different points of view anymore as part of cancer culture. Because there is a very militant faction of people who claim that there's only one truth. Well, let's test that out. James, can you see the benefits of Black Lives Matter? 
I know you've been very critical of it. We're in danger of losing the sense of nuance, the the importance of seeing different perspectives. Now, you've articulated a very intense personal criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement, and we've heard that. But can you turn it around? Can you turn around and say, okay, what are the strengths of a movement like Black Lives Matter in terms of what they're trying to achieve? Well, if one accepts that there are racist people, which there are, then I suppose one can say that if they're being reminded by this organization that Black Lives Matter, well, then they need to be told that. One would have to go on to say that's ineffectual because the racist people would simply say, as happened at a particular football game, they fly aeroplanes over a football ground saying white lives matter. Well, I mean, we all know that all lives matter and all human beings are equally sacred. That's a basic fact. And so Black Lives Matter is trying to point out, it seems to me, that not everyone believes that and that not every society is organised along those lines. Well, those two things are true. There's a very slender, nuanced benefit that I can see, I suppose. Well, thank you, James. At least we've got something from you, which I think is really important because a, a podcast like this tries to explore different views and get a sense of different perspectives. I, I want to move on to the wider question of pressure on journalists. There's this thing called the D notice. Tell us a little bit about it um, and what it's actually there for, because I'm sure many listeners don't know what a D notice is. This is where a government can close down discussion of any idea or revelation of stories according to national security. And I've never had to deal with this particular thing myself. So uh, I'd be happier to pass on to Miriam in a sense, apart from just saying that we haven't heard from D notices for a, quite a long time. And I think that might be because the government has become much better at closing down conversations. D-notices we did hear a lot about some years ago. And there was a question of national security when one had to protect one's secret agent in the Soviet Union. They had to be protected. I, I would agree with that. What's happening now, though, with communism? Well, we've got collusion with China in all sorts of ways. The pressure that had to be put on the government to promise to cut its links with Huawei in a few years' time was amazing. And the colluders with China, because of money, obviously, were numerous and still are in the higher ranks of the civil service. So I would simply say that they found better ways of closing things down than D-notices, but I could be corrected on that. I mean, I don't D-notices. I'm not a journalist. I think self-censorship is as strong as it ever was. And again, coming back to East Germany, a lot of the things in East Germany were self-censorship as well. It was actually people doing things because they thought that's what the authorities would like. So a lot of the more local provincial pressures on people were actually not authorities doing it, but was people thinking uh, the authorities may punish them if they didn't do this or they thought it would be better for their careers. So a lot of the things are self-censorship. What really influences the discourse and what also really influences the way that we are able to communicate these extreme forms of intersectionality that we have now. We have intersectionality on the left, which means if you're a left winger, you have certain dogma you have to believe in. And somehow for a while, this was a sort of a domain of the left, but the right is now exactly the same. If you're a right winger, you have to be in a certain way. You know, we've seen Tory party kicking out Remainers. Now the Tory party has kicked out someone who was sort of standing up against incompetence. We see that there are certain dogma forming on both sides that have to be absolutely adhered to. 
And that sort of translates into extreme self-censorship on both sides. I mean, I personally don't like masks particularly much, but I understand that for the well-being of these people, you know, moving away from individualist freedom, but for the for infection rates, it's probably a good idea to wear masks in public places. Yet at the same time, when you look at the US, the mask issue is the big issue that is now sort of creating this fissure between the, the liberals and conservatives. People on the conservative side say, oh, you know, masks can never be worn. It's such an infringement of personal freedom. People here cutting up their conservative party cards over this issue, which really is a non-issue because it's to do with the health of the people. Is there anything we can do to stop the spread of a certain disease? Masks have been suggested are a good way. I don't like masks, but I follow that the advice of experts who think this is a good way to stop aerosols of infected people sort of spreading around. So we've touched on some of the contemporary issues in terms of censorship and self-censorship and bullying. And we've also touched on some of the pre-modern issues as Miriam was talking about the printing press. But let's go back even further than that. I'm thinking of the famous Index Librorium Prohibitarum of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and that's not something, I mean, censorship was not something that originated with the Catholic Church. It's been part of human history. It's been part of religious history from the very beginning. Yes, the Inquisition, everyone was afraid of it. We now have the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is a descendant that tried to enforce a certain kind of thinking and excluded certain theologians from being in good order with the church. But I think, again, what we're seeing today is something much more subtle in the Catholic Church as well as anywhere else, certainly in the Catholic Church. And we don't have thumbscrews, but we do have pretty nasty forms of exclusion. And we have massive cover-up of crimes, two sorts of crimes. First of all, horrific crimes against children on a massive scale, which has not been dealt with. Pope Francis has tried to deal with it. It's been pushed this way. It's been pushed that way. But still we have people who have been complicit in that, who have not been dealt with. And then, of course, there's the financial corruption, which, again, at the Vatican, most people know is considerable, I would say, massive as well. So now we get cover-ups. And so in those days, if somebody wanted to say something damaging about the Catholic Church, we're talking about kind of pre-Reformation and so on, then they could be dealt with in a violent way in prison. Now, there are ways of just glossing over things and glossing over, I would say, terrible things. Well, I mean, the intent of censorship is to make sure that there are no divisions within a certain group of people. That's the point of censorship. You make sure that you maintain the homogeneity of a particular people by not letting ideas in which you think will split a nation. I mean, the point of censoring pornography, for example. Again, the ideas of pornography have greatly shifted. I mean, Balzac's few um, sexually motivated sentences are not pornography for us now. But of course, we still censor pornography very heavily because we want to make sure that a certain moral standard is held up there is no unrest that is based on differing sexual mores. Miriam mentions pornography. I think it's a very good issue in this context. And I think controlled because of it being immoral, which it is. But I think it's also controlled uh, more deeply because it's dehumanizing and it puts people in danger. In particular, child pornography endangers children. It leads to child trafficking. And pornography also encourages human trafficking. And I think when one can illustrate or establish that kind of link 
between child pornography or pornography in general and horrific abuse of women and children, then it has to be curtailed. It has to be, in fact, wiped out. And that's why it's correct to arrest all these people who are trading in all this stuff, which is massive around the world. And it needs to be absolutely controlled and stamped down and stopped. Well, something to agree on there. That's all for this week. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcast or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time.